question. We have a question. We all got questions. Now is the time to get your questions. I believe the word is answered. Hello and welcome to Asked and Answered, Revision Legal's podcast about intellectual property and internet law issues. This is episode four, and we'll be talking about fashion law. My partner, John DiGiacomo, is here today. John, how are you? I'm good. Uh, I'm the most unfashionable person in the world, so this should be an educational <laughs> experience for me. Me too. Uh, I'm Eric Mistarevich, by the way, and yeah, fashion is not a strong suit for me either. My wife, I think, cleaned me up a little bit, but um, you know, not a, not a strong fashion sense in our firm, I don't think. No, I, I don't think so. Maybe Jessica. I think she's got it down. Um, and she's good where she'll tell me that I look terrible, and I, I appreciate that. So I'm glad we hired honest people. Yeah, I've I've had that with my wife, certainly. I, I get dressed, and she looks at me and goes, no, nope, that's not, that's not going to work today. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we need people watching over us. And, and someone that can help us on the legal aspects of fashion laws with us today and that's Greta Hogan. Greta, how are you? Good. How are you? We're doing great. We're glad you're here with us. Thank you for having me. Greta, you are a law student at Michigan State College of Law, right? Yes, I am. That's awesome. That's both of our alma mater. So we're proud that you're carrying the, the torch for MSU. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And I think we're especially proud to see somebody like you stepping out and kind of making a name for yourself, even in law school, um, with this site that you've created. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and about your website? Sure. Um, so right now I am a second year law student and I'm from Youngstown, Ohio, and I've always had experience in fashion. Hopefully I'd like to think I know what I'm doing, but um, I've worked at a boutique and really enjoyed what I did there. And just, it's always kind of been a part of me. So when I came to law school, I decided I kind of wanted to pair up two things that I'm very passionate about. So combining fashion with the law. And my first year, I did not think it existed. Um, I was kind of, you know, just trying to figure out what I wanted to do or how I could create this area of fashion law. And that's when I found um, Fordham's Fashion Law Institute. And that's kind of you know, given me a path to start this website and create a brand for myself. Yeah, it's really great. I mean, it's, it's the fashion, the fashion docket, mm -hmm. fashion docket.com uh, for everyone out there listening and go check it out. It's really interesting. It's, it's a beautiful site Thank and um, I think you do a great job running it. And like John says, really smart idea to just go and start doing it because you never know what happens once you once you start something, and uh, this is really cool. Thank you. And actually, um, the business of fashion just announced that fashion is now a trillion dollar industry, one point five trillion to be exact. So it hopefully is really going to be up and coming, and I'm excited to see where it can take me. Yeah, I think uh, you know the niche areas of law that you can carve out and get some experience in and become an expert in uh it's only going to help you in the future and i think it's it's a, a great idea and, and even uh, better executed so that's probably the more <laughs> important you. thing um all right well why don't we kind of jump into 
fashion law. I know, you know, we provide, you know, one of the main areas we work in is internet law. Mm -hmm. And I think there's some, probably some relation in that there's really nothing exists as internet law nothing exists as fashion law. It's, It's a mix of traditional areas of legal practice and with a certain focus on one industry. Uh, that's how it is for internet law. So what kind of areas of law come into or make up your fashion law? So the, the way I like to explain it is really fashion law is just like the law, except it's dealing with fashion brands, retailers, designers, and things like that. Um, but it really encompasses everything from contract law, criminal law, um, intellectual property law, Internet law, whatever that might be, um, but there is a lot of problems, especially now that retailers are using internet um, to sell their goods, and there's sites like Etsy that are primarily online. Um, but it can also have a range of issues in environmental and animal law and employment and labor issues. So, a little bit of everything. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it. Um, what are the so when you are looking at you know the the news in fashion law issues are there things that are are right now that are news stories that people may not know about yeah um there's a couple different issues going on i know i have some on my blog but um as far as employment issues uh there's been an employment issue with abercrombie and fitch and it's actually made its way all the way to the supreme court um so that was dealing with uh, their regulations for their workers and what they could wear while they were working. Um, there's also disputes between Adidas and Marc Jacobs, and that has to deal with the signature three-stripe mark of Adidas, their trademark, and they're trying to protect that. So I think there's definitely issues. I don't know if maybe everyone might look at them as kind of fashion news, but they definitely intertwine with the law. Yeah, that, that Adidas lawsuit is pretty interesting. I think, you know, I'm certainly familiar and I think most people are familiar with the the three stripes of Adidas. So what's that case about? What's going on in that case? Sure. So Mark Jacobs came out with, I believe it was a part of his collection for the autumn winter 2014. And one of the sweaters that he had had the stripes going down the arm. And um, so Adidas filed suit for trademark to protect their mark because they're alleging that the three stripes going down the arm can be recognized as their symbol or their mark in the area of fashion. So if you saw it on the shoes or on the sweater or on a t-shirt, you would identify it with the Adidas name. Yeah. And you know, the three stripes are, I think a, a famous mark for, for, for Adidas. Um, but you know, at the same time it's three stripes, right? I mean, that's not the most creative, um, mark in the world and it's certainly not going to be uncommon, I would assume in fashion designs. Yeah. And actually this is the big problem is because, you can't copyright a useful article. So usually you would have a copyright protection for some sort of design that you have, except because it's on clothing and useful articles like shoes and things like that, you can't have a copyright. So now designers are trying to protect their mark by using 
their trademark. So you see the MK for Michael Kors on his handbags and you see the LVs for Louboutin. And now we're kind of venturing into, you know, what to do when you have these symbols that aren't necessarily um, words or phrases, but like the red sole and the three stripes, can it be recognized by consumers to be, you know, identified for that retailer or the brand? And, you know, really, I guess it would help to, you know, say why people are using trademarks. So these designers want to use the trademark because it's a, it's a sign for consumers. So consumers can see a good and see the mark on the good and know that it has a certain type of quality. So they know what to expect when they pay X amount of money to get that product. Yeah, that's a great point. I think um, it's worth elaborating on that, that the idea behind trademark and trade dress, which a lot of these, uh, a lot of these clothing items may fall under is that it lowers what we call cognitive search costs. And that's really just a fancy way to say that, when people want a really quality item, they want to be able to reach for Adidas and know that they're getting that quality item. And that's especially important in today's world because we have a lot of counterfeits coming from foreign countries. And you know, with trade dress and copyright, I think you made the point that copyright may not extend to these kind of useful articles, and it also may not extend to uh, items uh, or patterns that are common. So for example, if they fail to meet the originality or the, the spark of creation requirement associated with copyright, they might may not be copyrightable. So a lot of these designers are probably looking to trade dress because it doesn't have that requirement. Um, but trade dress also has the requirement, just like copyright, that if it is a useful article, there has to be, uh, you know, it has to be, uh, it has to acquire what's called secondary meaning. And I guess, Eric, if you want to discuss what secondary meaning is, it'd probably be helpful. Yeah, I mean, secondary meaning is it's not easy for everyone to accomplish. Um, it it basically is that the consumers see that mark, they see those uh, the shape of the Coke bottle, and they immediately identify that as Coca Cola, and that is a tough burden. Um, it's not easy for, especially for I guess relating to fashion law, new designers to just obtain trade dress rights. Um, it's going to take a while. It's going to take some recognition, advertising in the marketplace uh, for someone to obtain that kind of connection between the consumers and their marks. Um, you know, famous brands like Adidas uh, probably will be able to do that. Yeah, that's really the thing. It's that Adidas is famous. And when we see those three stripes, the, the consumer kind of has made that connection, which is why the Adidas is so protective uh, in in uh, protecting that mark, I guess, for lack of a better word. They, they really take that mark seriously because they want consumers to reach for their products. They want to ensure that they're getting the same quality product every time. And they don't want somebody like Marc Jacobs to trade off of the idea that, oh, hey, we can kind of funnel consumers to buy Marc Jacobs products who actually think that the Adidas design or the Adidas mark is an indicator of quality. Yeah, and the I'll, I'll put a link to this an article about this lawsuit in the show notes, and you know they have an image of the article in question, I think, and it's it looks you know it has three stripes. I don't know. I mean, you look at it, and it looks like Adidas. Well, and um, I think especially because Adidas is known for their track jackets. So to yeah. me, when I look at it, it's very, I think it's similar. Putting it on a sweater is 
so, so close to the track jacket. Yeah, that's a great point because the the test for trademark infringement or trade dress infringement, whatever the case may be here, is likelihood of confusion. So in determining whether or not there's a likelihood of confusion, a court's going to look at the similarity of the goods or services, and it's also going to look at the similarity of the trade channels. So if Marc Jacobs uh, is selling in the same you know, channels as Adidas is, and it's likely, uh, they're probably selling at different price points, but maybe not. Those are the types of things that play into that likelihood of confusion analysis. And you're right that this really does look like it looks like an Adidas track jacket. It looks like something that Corn would have worn in the '90s. <laughs> <laughs> it does. I mean, yeah. If this was a, I don't know, a purse or something that maybe is different, but yeah, this is a, it's a track jacket. It has the three stripes. I mean, it is very Adidas reminiscent to me. And I think especially we were talking about the, um, you know, what channel they're in and especially now because adidas is trying to you know match up with its competitor like nike they're doing all these collaborations with these famous artists so you know the question then becomes are they getting up to that mark jacobs status and mark jacobs is actually closing um, one of his collections or his brand so you know is mark jacobs coming down and adidas going up so they're meeting at that point where they are selling to the same people yeah true that's that's a very good point what about for smaller companies or, or new fashion designers? Um, do you think it's a good idea to start that having a mark process? I mean, fashion is so, to me, it's it's so wide ranging that you may not want to always come back to the same mark in your different designs. Um, do you think that's something that aspiring designers should think about? Yeah, so I think a couple of things. I mean, I guess it depends on, you know, what type of fashion are you going into? Like, who are you selling to? Who are your consumers that you're trying to reach out to? And, you know, what are you selling? Are you selling handbags or clothing, shoes? Um, So that's something to consider. But, you know, with me, I think even putting a brand to my blog, a lot of people ask me why I don't use my name. And it's almost like I want to create a brand. That's the purpose of why I have my blog. Whereas some people might just want to create, you know, a clothing line to sell at Nordstrom's and they don't necessarily want their name all over it. Um, But the other way to look at that is if you want to protect your designs, a good way to do it, at least in the United States, is to put a trademark on it. So it might not have to be your initials or your name, but some type of symbol, I guess, that you can put on your collection so that people recognize that it is your work. And um, if you're doing a deal with someone else, they can recognize that it is your work. Sure. Um, John, you know, that, that strikes true to us, I think, in terms of the name Revision Legal. People ask that all the time. Why are you called Revision Legal? Usually my answer is because DiGiacomo and Mysterovich <laughs> is a nightmare to say. <laughs> but that brand recognition is was the main motivating factor. Yeah, the the key factor was obviously um, it's very difficult to spell our names, but also that if we're going to be a trademark or an intellectual property law firm, then we should take trademark and brand building seriously. We should provide something. We should we should indicate to the consumer who's buying our legal services that we actually understand what the hell we're selling. And what we are selling is very important. So, yeah, you're right. The the idea that 
um, if you select a name and you stand by it, then you will build goodwill and people will continue to reach for that good is very important. And I think in fashion, the way that people have done it in the past is they have a housemark. Um, so the classic example would be somebody like Louis Vuitton who has the housemark of Louis Vuitton. But then you also have these submarks where this is Louis Vuitton, but this is the, you know, again, I don't know fashion that well, but this is the uh, sub-brand. This is the, you know, it has a certain price point. It has a certain quality. Yeah. Um, those things are important. I think if you're starting a business and you're starting a fashion-based business, it's important to identify what is my house brand? Do I have a plan for expanding to the into the future with other sub-brands or how are those sub-brands going to interact with my house brand? I mean, maybe, maybe Greta, I don't know if you agree with me on that, but uh, maybe you can elaborate on what your perspective on um, creating a brand, a fashion brand is. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with you. I think a lot of designers do it to kind of cover their grounds. I mean, it's important that uh, a lot of people are talking about Michael Kors now that he's kind of diluting his brand because he's reaching out to so many different markets. Whereas, you know, if you, I think if you do it in the right way, um, in moderation, you could do it right. So when I talked about Mark Jacobs, I believe he he's now closing down the mark by Mark Jacobs. So he has, like you were saying, the different brand names and um, they all have you know, the different markets that they appeal to. So I guess if you if you do it properly, it can be beneficial. But you just have to be careful that you're not diluting your brand because you're trying to reach out too broadly. That's a great point. We have a client um, locally who has a t-shirt company. And when you think of a t-shirt company, you don't think of high fashion. But often it can be. When you select yeah. a t-shirt, it's quality of materials, it's the cut of the t-shirt. And really, it's also the brand. The brand is the key element. And their perspective is, look, we're going to price high. We're going to acquire high quality goods to put our marks onto that T-shirt. We're not going to sell this in low quality sto stores. We're going to have license agreements with you know distributors that meet our brand quality guidelines. And you're right. If you don't do that, if you're not taking that level of control through contract or otherwise, you're really going to dilute your brand and it almost becomes meaningless. If, you are brand, uh, if your brand is diluted in that way, the signal to noise ratio, for lack of a better term, is high. And no one's going to be able to know who you are. And they're, you know, frankly, they're probably not going to care who you are. Yeah, and that's a good point. I mean, even with Louis Vuitton, so a lot of brands have been kind of changing their price points and trying to appeal to the economy that we're in. And Louis Vuitton has not swayed. They've left their product to be valued high because you know, that's what they're known for. So someone like Louis Vuitton, if you're, you know, valuing $29 billion, then it makes sense for you to stay in that high market and not branch out and make, you know, low end products. So it really just depends, I think, on number one, the product and the brand. Yeah, I, that's all, all very good points. And, you know, one thing that's I'm hearing that's coming, coming to mind is the use of your name in association with the line of products you sell. Obviously it's very apparent in fashion and that's not always the best from a trademark perspective uh, to be only using a surname in connection with your goods or services. Um, you probably won't obtain trademark registration right away. Um, it's not a very distinctive mark. Um, the idea of, and I think this is something for young or, or new fashion designers. 
take some time to figure out if your brand can really be protected. You know, if you're going to spend all this time following your dream and creating this product, talk to an attorney, get an idea of how to best select a name, a brand, a logo to go along with what you're going to build, right? Yeah, I think yeah. that's great advice. I'm sorry, Greta, I didn't interrupt you, but no, um, I think that's great advice because you're right. Louis Vuitton, um, is it Louis Vuitton or is it Louis Vuitton? It's Lou. Okay, so I'm terrible with this. <laughs> Louis Vuitton, obviously, they've been around forever. Same with uh, Chanel, those types of brands. They mm-hmm. they do use surnames, but they've built this longstanding goodwill into those surnames. It was probably more difficult for them to get a mark, but they have marks now. It's a lot easier for a younger company to get a mark not in a surname. And it's always a trade-off, right? If you want to... If the, you want the brand to be you, if you are that designer, you know maybe you do select a surname. If you don't want the brand to be you, if you want to protect the brand early, maybe you don't select a surname. Those are things that should be addressed right at the outset, I would think. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think most people just assume, hey, it's me. It's my name. You know, this is great. I'll call it my name. Who else can have a mark in my name? Well, there's probably other people that have your same name. And trademark law doesn't like to give out exclusive ability to use a surname, a last name. And so I think it's just a word to the wise. Whether you're starting a fashion business or the next brewery, last names are just traditionally weak marks. And it might be your first inclination to incorporate that. But um, the the more distinctive your mark, the more... Um, you know, kind of arbitrary, the, the classic example of, you know, Amazon to sell books or Apple to sell computers, those are better marks. Those are stronger marks. And for anyone listening, thinking about starting a brand or business of any kind, you should take some time to really think about that and include that analysis into selecting your name. So let's talk a little bit about how designers actually protect their works and protect them against infringement and counterfeit copies. Greta, can you give us an idea of, I mean, you, you know this area well. How do designers, you know, ranging from large and small, protect against infringement, counterfeit works, um, and just protect their works in general? So one thing that um, is becoming big now is these larger brands are having brand protectors. So attorneys who are actually you know, going out there and trying to shut down these websites because now a lot of the counterfeits are being sold on websites. And I know there was even something on Facebook where advertisements were coming up and everyone truly thought they were the real purses or handbags. Um, and it turned out to be a counterfeit site. So you, I think a lot of consumers aren't sure what to trust or if it's a fake or not. They think they're getting a really good deal on something. So I think definitely... Um, attacking the internet sources of these counterfeits is becoming a big issue. But um, there isn't any laws to protect fashion designs in the United States. So it's definitely becoming an international battle because there are different laws in different countries. Um, You know, is uh, fashion design protected? Yes, maybe not. Um, I think it really just depends. Yeah, I think we've seen these kind of programs instituted. A good example is eBay's Vero program. Vero is this program uh, instituted by eBay where if you are a designer and you believe that your rights are going to be 
wide scale. You're going to face wide scale infringement. You can contact eBay, and eBay will set up a program where you can notify them on, and have these items removed on an expedited basis. You know that that works sometimes. <laughs> other times it doesn't. There are a lot of other sites that have programs like that. Etsy being one of them. Um, but I think designers probably face a real threat from Chinese counterfeiting. It's just, it's a kind of the elephant in the room with, with regard to American brands or even European brands because stuff's made a lot cheaper there. And I have seen actually some uh, attempts to stop the importation of what are seen as counterfeit goods uh, through the U S customs bureau. Again, it really depends on whether or not somebody catches it at the customs bureau. So it's a really, Say yeah. That. Yeah, yeah. It's a really tough problem to solve. Yeah. And I think now um, a lot of at least. OK, so if, with the handbags, if they get imported and it's just the bag, what they're doing is they're separately taking these little trademarks of Prada with them and then putting them on the bag once they are already imported and in the state. So, you know, really, could you tell that that's a knockoff when it's coming through customs? Maybe not. So it's just people are getting smart about how they're doing it. And I think it's really, it's harder to catch. That's a great point. My brother-in-law actually lives in China, ex-brother-in-law now, um, lives in China. And he would come home for Christmas and he would bring me shirts. And one year he brought me a polo shirt. And the polo shirt, he said, this polo shirt was made in the same factory as polo. You know, it's not it's not actually real. And of course, my first reaction was, you're giving a trademark attorney a fake polo shirt. This is the stupidest thing you've ever done. But you're right. They're, they're doing all these sophisticated things where they're, you're, they're bringing things in and then they're sewing them on after the fact. Um, and these customs and border patrol guys are getting boxes of labels and they're just saying, you know, okay, we can stop these labels from coming in, but it's not like they're not just going to ship more labels. It's not expensive to ship labels. It's expensive to ship product. So it, it's just a weird problem. It's kind of an interesting time to to live in this world, uh, live in a time of globalism, and see all of these uh, brand industry problems associated with that world. Yeah, it seems like one of those problems where the, the bad actors are always going to be a step ahead of enforcement. Yeah. Um, no matter what you do, I guess... I guess the only silver lining in there is if your goods are being counterfeited by Chinese manufacturers, I guess it's a sign you've made it to yeah. some extent. Well, that's right. That's and, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, sorry, go, ahead. go ahead. Um, no, I was just going to say I was at the symposium at the Fashion Law Institute in New York last weekend, and that's what um, a lot of us were saying. Oh, you've made it. People are copying you, and the designers didn't like that very much because <laughs> – it is such a huge industry for these counterfeiters. If they weren't making so much money off of it, it might not be, you know, a big concern of the designers. But unfortunately, it is, and they are making money off of it. Yeah, and it seems like it's going to be a problem uh, that will continue on. But why don't you tell us a little bit more about uh, that symposium you attended that was at Fordham? Yes. Yeah, so um, – that's kind of how I got started in the fashion law thing. I was searching online and I found that there is a Fordham Fashion Law Institute. So Professor Susan Scafidi has basically created this institute that combines fashion and law. And I believe there's seven courses, but they do offer a summer program. So it's offered to people 
internationally and it's a two-week program and it's in New York City and I believe it was eight days so when I went it was only Tuesday to Friday Tuesday to Friday so you had some time off in the city and you go to class and you learn about the different topics in fashion law and kind of what's going on now um, and you also have the opportunity to do day trips so uh, it's voluntary but it is included in the cost that you pay for the course and for instance the places they will take you are amazing the connections that the, that Susan has um, we went to the Met and we met with in-house counsel so the museum and uh, we also went to visit sustainable jewelry designer Melissa Joy Manning and we saw her studio we saw how her jewelry is made and we also went to the design studio of fashion designer Nanette Lepore and she's from my hometown so I was so excited to go there and it was just amazing we got to see them making the garments we got to go to her showroom so the same place that Nordstrom's would come when they want to decide what what pieces from the collection that they want to purchase it was just awesome. Yeah, that sounds amazing. It sounds like a great experience. It's always nice to see the you know your clients or potential clients actually working. You know, where we work somewhat up in the clouds sometimes with the issues we face, and it's always fun to go visit and see the actual production and see the you know see the beer being made or the clothes being made. It's it's fun to see that and know that you're helping them do that to some extent. Well, I think it gives you know, clients and appreciation for the work that we do. And I think a lot of times attorneys are kind of seen as the bad guys or, you know, if they bring you different options for a trademark and you shoot down everyone that they really like, they think that you're the bad guy and you don't want them to succeed. But really like being there and with the consumers and the designers being able to see that, you know, I really care about the fashion industry. I care about the products that they're making, the collections that they have. So what better person to represent them than someone who actually understands and appreciates what they're doing. Certainly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So is that an annual um, conference at Fordham? Yes, I believe. Oh, well, the symposium is annually. And then I think the boot camp is every summer it's offered. So you'll be going back next year, I take it? Well, I guess I won't be going back to the boot camp. I think it's more, it's offered annually, but it's more of like a one-time thing. I mean, I'm sure I would love to go again next year, but it's so expensive. (laughs) (laughs) I bet. Yeah, New York. And being in New York for the weekends, uh, expensive too, if you're used to East Lansing. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Now, New York is obviously a fashion capital, just like Paris and Milan. What else is going on out there? You know, we make fun of East Lansing for not being a fashion capital, but it kind of is, isn't it? There's stuff going on in East Lansing, isn't there? Well, yeah, actually. So there was just a fashion incubator that was open in Lansing. It's called The Runway. They do have a website. You can go and look at their designers and contact them. And I believe they actually do have a a retail shop at the bottom floor of their incubator that you can go and purchase the products from the designers themselves. But um, basically what the fashion incubator is, is it's an office space and a showroom space for a set of designers. So they might have 10 to 12 designers and they provide workspace to create their designs at a lower cost and they offer different types of expert. So they might get business advice or financial advice or legal advice. And it's really just a great place for them to work together, but then have a showroom for themselves so that if, 
you know, someone wanted to come and purchase their brand or come and look at it and see how it's made, they can, you know, have a professional space rather than just working out of their home. Very cool. I'm sure that opens up a lot of opportunities for people who otherwise would not have the ability to scale. Um, you know, they get that kind of mentorship that they need at the most important part at which they need it. And then they also, I'm sure, are energized by being around other like-minded individuals. Exactly. Well, um, Greta, we like to end these podcasts with giving a tip to listeners on uh, some legal advice that uh, may be useful in their industry. And we thought we'd kind of give you the floor of, you know, if you're giving one piece of advice to uh, a young fashion designer or a small fashion company, um, what would it be if you had one thing to tell them? So I think if I had one thing to tell a fashion designer, especially if they're on the smaller scale, is just, you know, be careful about what you agree to. If you have a contract or someone approaches you and, you know, they really are interested in your collection and they, you know, want to do some type of deal with you, it's great. And I'm sure, you know, something can come out of it, but you should be cautious about the terms and conditions of that agreement and make sure you really do look at what you're signing before you sign it, because you could be entering into an agreement that might bind you to something that you didn't know you agreed to. Um, Or maybe you don't have an agreement at all. You don't have a written agreement. And so I think it's best to have something in writing um, or at least get some legal advice prior to making a decision like that. That's a great point. There, a lot of times people will use these custom manufacturers uh, and even online manufacturers where they'll be you know, behind the scenes as a graphic designer and then they'll upload a pattern, for example, to a website and the website will then print the goods and send them to them or they'll send them to a wholesaler or whatever. A lot of times those people don't read the terms of use agreement and the terms of use agreement will say things like, you're giving us a non-exclusive license that's perpetual or whatever it might be. So that's great advice. Definitely talk to an attorney, read everything, make sure you understand exactly what's going on. Yeah, get it in writing. I can never, that's always a good piece of advice. And I think it's true. Um, don't get too far ahead of yourselves when you get a new opportunity. Um, you know, opportunities are great, but they also come with risks and you got to understand what you're getting yourself into uh, because it may have lasting impacts on you. So I certainly think that's a good piece of advice, Greta. And I think if you do your research, you should be good. I mean, you can find things on everyone on the internet now. So at least look into who you're getting into a relationship with. <laughs> yep. That, that makes perfect sense. Well, I think this is um, has been a really great podcast. I know I learned a lot uh, about it, Greta. I want to really thank you for being here today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful, and I'm glad I got to you know talk about fashion law and at least explain what it is. And it seems like you know it is a hot topic, and it can definitely um, intertwine with a lot of things that are currently going on. Yeah, we certainly appreciate it. And I, I want to say that I'm proud to be a graduate of Michigan State Law because if they keep producing people like you, then I will never have to worry about the value of my degree. I think that uh, somebody would be very lucky to hire you. So, Wow, thank you very much. I think, I, it's, I think it's great. I agree.
Definitely. Great job. And yeah, just the initiative to go for it, I think it means so much. So congratulations. I think you're doing a great job. Keep it up and uh, we'll have you back sometime. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you.